All right, it's the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. On this week's episode, we got a twofer for you. First up, Carla Lolly Music, our food director, sits down with James Beard Award-winning chef, Daniel Patterson. Patterson is the head of the restaurant group DPG, which most notably includes Qua, uh, the esteemed Bay Area fine dining spot. And he and Carla talk about his decision to walk away as chef of Qua for about a decade uh, to focus on local, the sort of kind of healthier fast food concept that he and L.A. chef Roy Choi developed to bring to underserved neighborhoods. One note, since this episode was recorded, the Oakland branch of local clothes. So just keep that in mind as you listen to the interview. After that, I talked to senior projects editor Julia Kramer about a story she wrote for our June grilling issue. Um, You've noticed like when you go to kind of like cool, good restaurants these days, they all have like this open kitchen and there's always that like amazing grill with like the logs and the embers and you're like oh my god that's so cool did you ever wonder where all that wood comes from well julia did she went on a journey to upstate new york uh, to find out how the wood is sourced and aged and dried and all that sort of stuff and a uh, a certain soap opera star a former soap opera star uh, that supplies so many of these restaurants in new york city and beyond so julia carla let's do this thing So, Daniel Patterson, thank you so much for coming in today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's really wet and wild out there in New York City today. It's like a monsoon. It's it awesome. Is truly monsoonish. Um, it's hard to even introduce you at this point in your career because there's the list of restaurants that is longer than ever, right? Um, along with new restaurants that are so different from what you are known for doing before. So, I think. Um, if you can set up for us, you know, starting cooking at a very young age and how you sort of ended up in fine dining, we start with that. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I mean, it's really funny, you know, I, I started, um, I started working professional kitchens when I was 14 as a, as a dishwasher. And, you know, I still feel now when I walk into a kitchen, exactly the same. I feel like a cook. I feel like, you know, just one of the staff, like I was, I was cooking a dinner last night and my favorite moment was when someone came in, they had no idea who I was and they just said, oh, are you here for, for an event? Yeah. Is, is it a chef cooking tonight? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Do you know anything about it? No. <laughs> That's awesome. And so like, I don't know, it's, um, I, I started working in restaurants and I kept doing it through school um, and then eventually when I was about 19, uh, I realized that was what I wanted to do for my career. And, and, and then I moved the next year to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, I started working in restaurants there and I just forgot to get a real job and now it's too <laughs> late. And meanwhile, you were like building a career, right? Yeah. You know, in retrospect, you look back and you think I was building something, but at the time, I was just one foot in front of the other. Mm-hmm. And what I discovered very, very early on was um, that I love to cook for people. Mm-hmm. I love to feed people. Um, I really responded to, on the one hand, the culture of the kitchen. Um, I liked being um, hidden. Mm-hmm. I, I liked being able to do something that was very emotionally satisfying and very loving and caring um, and at the same time be in this environment that was kind of um, focused and 
really um, kind of uh, didn't leave me with much time to get in trouble. Right. <laughs> so you started a, as a teenager and in a dishwasher's position. So who who was the first person who who gave you the opportunity to get behind the stove? Oh, um, pretty early on. Like yeah. I. I, I you're, you're, you're washing dishes and someone notices you wash dishes kind of fast and then they give you some prep and they realize that you can actually learn things and then you end up cooking burgers and then you kind of go from there. So you really worked your way mm -hmm. straight up. And then when you started cooking at that decision that you were like, this is, this is it, this is what I want to do, was part of that also being a business owner? Oh, God, no. No. I, I never imagined I would own a business. I mean, I guess I was I was always pretty ambitious mm -hmm. or driven mm -hmm. or something because obviously I went step by step. So there was something in me right. that wanted to follow some sort of path. Um, but I was I was a line cook, and then um, I became a sous chef when I was like 22, and and then um, I couldn't find a place that I wanted to work at, and so I opened one, and I was 25. Wow! And I knew nothing. Really. I mean, I was, I was the, I, I was a as good. As far as the business side, because you yeah. obviously knew how to cook. Kind of. Okay. I knew how to make food taste good. Okay. And I think that that's the thing that I've always kind of had, which is not, I know when things are well seasoned. Right. And, and that sounds like, like not much of a thing, but for whatever reason, like, um, I think that it has something to do with the emotional aspect. I could I could make things that made people feel good, I mm -hmm. guess is the best way I can say it. But the business, no, I had no idea what I was getting into. But what I was really good at was working. I well, could work. That comes in handy. Yeah. Every day, like sixteen hours a day. And 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 the problem is now I still think that I'm twenty five years old. Mm -hmm. And it feels a little bit different. Yeah, I wake up in the morning, I'm like, God, what am I doing? <laughs> um, so these days you own, it's, I mean, would you describe it as a, a group of restaurants? Yes. So um, it's gone through some kind of uh, changes. So we have one restaurant called Alta mm -hmm. that we're growing into a group. Got it. And then kind of everything else will end up an umbrella under it except Aster, which is a partnership with Brett Cooper, who's the chef and who runs it. And my role is kind of, uh, you know, uh, corollary, but not deeply involved in day-to-day. -day. Okay. And the same with Qua, where, you know, um, uh, Matt Kirkley, who's the chef there, really runs the day-to-day -day operations. It's all his menu, all his food, and I just kind of provide support. Awesome. And those restaurants are all in San Francisco, right? And maybe, Hugh, closer to the line of cooking that put you on the map as a as a nationally recognized and, or internationally um, chef, where it was very veg-forward, very unique, creative um, type of cuisine that didn't have um, necessarily an equal or a lot of restaurants like it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, you know, I don't know how the style of kind of evolved the way it did, but I think part of it was when I opened my first restaurant, it was in Sonoma, California. So back then in the early 90s, so this is 1994, it wasn't really the same kind of tourist destination. Right. And it wasn't Napa. Yeah. So I was very isolated. So I wasn't 
the community wasn't a community that was very interested in haute cuisine. Mm -hmm. So I developed kind of like my own ideas because I didn't really have anyone to talk to. And I spent a lot of time on farms. I would go, like if I wanted corn, I would go pick it or, or pick it up at the farm stand. Um, if I wanted flowers, I would go pick them in the morning and I would bring them and uh, things would never see the inside of the refrigerator sometimes. Right. So I had a very unique kind of experience for five years and that was really very formative. And so a lot of the ways I learned to cook, ve very vegetable centric, um, uh, light, bright, a lot of acidity. Mm -hmm. Those were just things that were in me mm -hmm. that developed in a idiosyncratic way because no one was around to tell me that that wasn't how things are supposed to be done or that's not how you're supposed to cook artichokes or whatever it was. Right. But at the same time, you were surrounded by this very vibrant agricultural farming, beautiful land and great product. Absolutely. So Napa Valley, um, even at that time, was very much focused on uh, grapes only. Mm. And, and a lot of that, I think, probably had to do with the fact that the the land was much more expensive and Sonoma was much more and continues to be much more agriculturally diverse. So there was a lot of farms and there was a lot of uh, producers that were within, you know, a 10, 15, 20 minute drive. Right. And so it was an incredible opportunity. And uh, I had no idea at that time how special it was. And I look back and I think just, wow, I, you know, we started doing um, tasting menus at a time when no one did tasting menus. Right. Uh, I mean, there was the French Laundry and that mm -hmm. was kind of it, you know? And uh, and so, you know, back then it seemed just kind of like one foot in front of the other. And I look back now and I think, wow, that was really amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, sounds like the dream. So, so then just to shift to the last couple of years for you, which maybe you know, couldn't set it up better from going to this this rural, isolated, farming, outdoor-based restaurant that's that was maybe put you kind of out there on your own to opening local in the past couple of years and um, originally in, in Watts, which is a city outside of L.A. or it's part of L.A. County? So it's part of L.A. It's the brief history is that it used to be its own city. It was bought post or during World War II by LA uh, specifically to put the war effort there. And so there was the barracks that were built for the gotcha. people who um, were serving and, and a lot of industry. And then post-World War II, like many other places across the country, was kind of abandoned because the, the war was over. So you open a restaurant in Watts in a neighborhood that is underserved, let's say, by, um, you know, by certainly restaurants that feature homemade from scratch cooking, right? And I think I read that there were two sit-down restaurants in the neighborhood, a Subway and a Popeye's. Is that right? So the two restaurants that are actually known as quote-unquote restaurants, um, there's the Watts Coffee House. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's in the, the Jordan Downs area, a couple blocks away from where local is. And then there's another, um, which is near um, Nickerson, which is another one of the projects, which is technically outside of Watts, but considered to be part of Watts, which is uh, Hawkins, which is a burger place. So, you know, just to draw, you know, this is a very different... And that's 50,000 people. Right. And this is a very different kind of neighborhood and a very different clientele than the restaurants you've opened in the past. So this is just a completely different idea. Um, and 
just talk about why 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 you started this restaurant. What was this about? So I think one thing one thing I've noticed in this process is that somehow I feel like maybe as cooks, as an industry, we've drifted away a little bit from um, uh, what it means to cook for someone. Mm -hmm. uh, love, kindness, generosity, um, acceptance. These are, these are core values that have always been in the kitchen. The kitchen's been a place that, that always accepted everyone, that, that was an incredible equalizer. Because you're in the kitchen, like what people really care about if, if you're working together is, is, is how well you're cooking and, right. and how well you're working together as a, as a team. Yeah. And so for me, it's very natural. And, and, and it seems maybe like this incredible dramatic shift, but I don't really see any difference between cooking a burger and Watts and a tasting menu at Quats. all cooking and it, it all comes from the same emotional place. Where it actually started was I started a, something called the Cooking Project. And it was basically, I partnered with a organization called Larkin Street Youth Services in San Francisco, and they take kids um, who, are, who are homeless and they um, give them a place to sleep and, and counseling and job training, get them back on their feet. And one thing that they didn't do is teach them how to cook for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I was working with the organization in different ways. And I said, look, you know, the kids don't know how to cook. So send them to me on Mondays. We're closed. And this when I was the chef at Gua and, and they would send 10, 12 kids at a time. And we do very, very simple things like here's a chicken, uh, here's some different stuff. You can do a, a pasta, dressing a salad, um, things like here's how to cook Swiss chard. And you're talking about kids that really are, they're, they're 18 to 22, 17 to 22. Some of them hadn't even seen like um, things like chard or cauliflower. Yeah. They'd grown up on processed food. And there's this mythology that like, only some people want, you know, healthy food and right. some people gravitate towards. And, and unfortunately, this breaks along um, kind of uh, stereotypical lines mm -hmm. of, of class and, and, um, and, and race and, and um, geography. The fact is everyone loves delicious food. Right. And the great thing about human physiology is the way our, our um, center of emotion and memory connect to what we eat and, and drink and smell a good experience makes us crave whatever that good experience was centered around. Mm -hmm. So it was incredible watching like these lightning bolts. A kid would, the kids would, um, would, would taste the food and they'd be like, man, this is so good. And then they, they go off and the next week they come back like, okay, I tried that thing with the Swiss chard, but I put in the, the fish sauce and the chili flakes, like you said, and I put in a little garlic too, because I felt like I want a little bit. So then they started to kind of get this, this passion about cooking. And I realized like, man, you know, if there's only a way, like we were teaching 500 kids a year. Yeah. But I want to reach more, more people. And I thought, man, if there's only like some vehicle. And I thought like fast food, right? Kids eat fast food. So what if there's a fast food company with like real food? Mm -hmm. and, that, and then so that was where the idea started and it didn't really go anywhere for a while. And then I met Roy Choi actually at... Um, at the MAD conference in Copenhagen in 2013. And he gave this amazing talk about hunger. And he talked about South Central Los Angeles. And he talked a lot about things that people don't talk about that much, like responsibility. Mm -hmm. Like we're, you know, he was talking to a bunch of chefs who cook for some of the, the, the wealthiest people in the world and some of the best restaurants said, you know, what he said was, um, you know, maybe for every 
fancy fine dining restaurant. What if you open one, you know, in, in one of the communities? Right. And, and, and in a way, I've come to really feel like that is a path forward that I hope for mm-hmm. in this country. Because think about it. Okay, you open a place in, in downtown Chicago, go open a place in Southside. Right. But don't just open it. Like, go spend some time there. Spend some time with the people and, and listen. Ask so I'm, I'm curious, when you were starting out with the idea, how, why did it become a question of let's start a new restaurant rather than how can I recruit people who need jobs from other neighborhoods, right, and give them a skill in the restaurant I already have? Like, did you feel like you had a diverse staff in the restaurants you had, or were you, um, was it kind of like the monochromatic culinary grad who wants to be, uh, you know, the hardcore chef working for a hardcore chef? Like, why did you feel like you needed to have a restaurant rather than training people who could bring those skills back to their community or back to their houses? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Partly it's, you know, Quasa. Qua was very unique in the sense that we always had stages like four, five, six people, and they were from around the world, mm-hmm. from all different kinds of cultural backgrounds. Uh, the makeup of our staff was always very diverse and very international. Americans have a very distinctive um, understanding of race, which is not shared uh, as much by people from around the world. And um, it's it's not the same... Uh, open and persistent and painful wound that it is for for people in this country. Mm-hmm. And so the environment at Equa was not um, that we had like all white people. We had all different kinds of people and the people that have worked there a long time and have gone on have also been very diverse and they've opened, um, you know, restaurants from... Um, and, you know, the like, for example, Taco Maria, where Carlos Sagado opened this amazing restaurant with combining um, like kind of haute cuisine with his uh, Mexican um, upbringing and, and, and cultural understandings to make something that's really unique and mm-hmm. personal. Part of the answer is that the communities need good food mm-hmm. and they need opportunity within the communities, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're, we're talking here largely to uh, an audience of people who have never been to Watts, who never spent time in, in Southside Chicago and North St. Louis and all of these communities which are very isolated. And so it's really impossible to describe how different it is. So creating a viable business, creating jobs, hiring from within the community mm-hmm. has a very, it's had a very powerful effect on people's lives and their sense of their own legacy and sense of their own um, uh, possibility. Now, people are migrating from, for example, Watts into Roy's restaurants in Los Angeles. People who we hired from East and West Oakland in local are now moving into my restaurants and especially Alta where we've been um, very consciously um, working with uh, a nonprofit organization called Rock United on a racial equity program to provide opportunity and to basically to everyone, but particularly people of color who have not had 
access to the highest paid and most visible jobs and, and fine dining restaurants. So there's really two different things. One is is kind of low to the ground, um, inexpensive, accessible food, right. which the community really needs. And, now, and, and the corollary question, which you asked, is how do you open up fine dining restaurants to a more diverse staff? And, and, and the answer is you have to change your entire culture. Right. You have to um, have a, a level of um, sensitivity that is not common in fine dining restaurants, but yeah. then a lot of it has comes down to standardization. Right. How do you hire people? How do you right. assess them to take out implicit bias, yeah. to be able to assess people for their own merits and not what you assume they can or can't do. And it's a lot of listening, a lot of asking and saying, what do you want? Right. What are you good at? And, Tell us. And training and teaching, which is not always part of the restaurant culture and the kitchen culture. It's kind of like you're punished for what you, you know, don't know. And like, um, how can you not know how to do that? And, the, you know, sort of expectations like that. But let's talk about the menu a little bit because it is, the menu itself reads like any, you know, any burger menu would, you know, cheeseburgers, but you can get a veggie option. So that's a little bit eye-opening or a double. There's chicken nugs, which is your guys's take on a chicken nugget. So things that are immediately sort of recognizable. I know what that is. It's not, um, you know, not one of those menus that I think of it like ingredient lists that someone's going to look down and go like, I have no idea what half of these things are. So I clearly don't want them because I don't know what it tastes like. So wanting to be accessible from the beginning, but also at the beginning there was with what you were saying about having quality ingredients that the burgers cut with whole grains and tofu and um, making an effort to have that both as a cost consideration, it sounds like, um, but also to introduce like more whole foods into into the diet or into the makeup of this thing that's just like very American, but maybe not that um, healthy. The OJ burrito, which OJ was a burrito. special, now looks like it's a it's a menu item. Mm -hmm. What's what is it? Oh, it's really good, and it's a burrito. It's but it's um, um, the bean mix that we make. So the bean mix that we make, which goes in our foldies, and the foldies are pretty awesome too. They're kind of like um, the the love child of a taco, a quesadilla. So it's like all of those things kind of mixed together, and it just comes out a little reminiscent of all of them, but not like any of them. Uh huh. And the the bean mix is um, it's onions and garlic, a ton of oil and some spices, just all kind of cooked together, and then mixed with um, crushed like three different kinds of beans lentils, uh, there's brown rice in there. Okay, so going back to the bur the burger and the evolution of the local menu. So the, bur the burger today, how is it different than the burger you opened with? Um, let's see. So we just changed the bun. Um, the, the original recipe was amazing, but too bready. Okay. And what we found, it took a long time to sort through where people had issues with the burger we like, we couldn't figure it out. And then we finally realized that the bun was taking up too much of their attention. And, and, and like, was it physically too big? No. Okay. It was um, the structure. Oh, I see. Yeah. Not like squishy enough, not. Not squishy mm -hmm. enough, not insubstantial enough. So, um, so uh, we just switched to a kind of more normal, but still really well-made burger bun. 
Um, we've gone through a couple of iterations. We've ended up with a very classic roadside burger with, you know, iceberg lettuce mm-hmm. and tomato, onion, and a sauce, which is really we've had almost since the beginning, but we just combined it in a different way, which is kind of our, our awesome sauce. And and that's it. And then the cheddar cheese and, okay. and the burger. So it's really like... Do you guys butter the buns? Well, we toast them, you but toast not, not them. with butter. You don't butter them. There's butter in the buns. So there's but nothing we, on the burger bun itself. A little bit of oil. Oh, okay. Yeah, we, we use oil to griddle them. It doesn't... Got it. Because of the heat, it doesn't burn. Mm-hmm. And then another question is, did you, in the research, right, you spent a lot of time in the community, did you also spend time eating fast food? No. You didn't? No, Roy, Roy kind of filled me in on all that. Um, I, I had a bite or two of things here and there, but, um, but So no. that experience of the, the nostalgic food memory or the flavor um, that you talked about being important, you know, the thing that you're used to is the thing that you crave – but for you, it was like, let's just start from something that t- tastes good to us. Yeah. And and also then you can just kind of um, uh, fine tune mm-hmm. based on, you know, should it be messier? Should it be this? Should it be that? I mean, I kind of knew where we were heading for. And, and as we went along, we learned more and more what was going to hit the mark. And yeah. then, you know, as a cook, um, it's a little bit of reverse engineering, right? So, so at a restaurant like Qua, I'm deciding what's the flavor and where the target is. And I'm going to go to a place that maybe people haven't been to before, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to bring them along. But, so this is the different, like someone else gives me a target. Like I went down to help on the the chicken wings and the wa- waffle. waffle batter. And so all I was trying to do was when someone else was giving me the target, I was saying, okay, I'm going to help reach that target. And so that's kind of what I did with the burger. So it's like, instead of being kind of a, uh, you know, the author approach. It's mm-hmm. the complete opposite where someone else says, this is what I want. And you say, okay, I'm here to, I'm here to serve. I'm here to kind of execute that. Get us that. there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you see this local as being um, a multi-unit, you know, across all the states in many different markets? You've mentioned being in Chicago and being in St. Louis. Like, is that Knowing now what you didn't know maybe when you opened the first one, is that still part of the vision? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But, you know, like anything, it takes it takes a while to kind of learn. Uh, and, and this is different on so many levels than anything anyone's really tried. There's a lot of things that we didn't anticipate and a lot of ways that um, we need to um, kind of think about things in a different way. Mm-hmm. But that's definitely, you know, we think probably by next year we'll start. Spreading into Expanding other states, more. yeah, yeah. Are the restaurants profitable? Um, just about. Just about. Are there members of the staff from the initial opening that are still with you? Oh yeah, yeah. The majority, really. Yeah. All right, let's get into. We do this on most of our podcasts. Lightning round. All right. I'm going to ask you this or that. And you have to choose one. And really when you're choosing, it's like you're choosing for the rest of your life. So this like accounts for no evolution as a person. So I just remain you are, fixed you're in done place now. for the rest. Like you are going oh, to God. a planet where you can just only bring one. Are you telling me this is like the Faustian bargain that I just made Perhaps. by getting on this podcast? Maybe. Oh, 
Okay. But we'll start with a softball one because <laughs> I don't want to, I can tell this is like deeply, a deeply felt. And I get it. I totally get it. Um, vanilla or chocolate? Chocolate. Okay. Me too. Berkeley or Oakland? Oakland. Cool. Rice or beans? Uh, yes. <laughs> right, exactly. Rice or pasta? Rice. Me too. Uh, soft serve or hard packed? Mm. Soft serve. Really? Talk about that a little bit. Normally we don't expand. Mm. Is it just the texture, temperature? No, just the nostalgia? what in my mind. Okay, cool. But yeah, you know. forever. When I was growing. <laughs> forever, Daniel. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plant my flag on this one. Okay. We do, we do like, so at Alta, we only do soft serve. I actually love soft serve and it takes me back to Dairy Queen. Yeah. When I grew up on the, on the East Coast, going there as a kid, it was like. Um, like the most magical yeah. moment, like of my life. It's so you know, funny. Every time I, went there. I didn't. I grew up on the East Coast. I never went to Dairy Queen. And then when I started working at Shake Shack, we had the concretes, and everyone would come up and be like, "What's a concrete?" And everyone who worked there was like, "It's just like a blizzard." And I was like, "Stop saying that because it's nothing like a blizzard. I don't even know what a blizzard is." And they were like, "Trust me, it's just like a blizzard." So, yeah. Then finally, I, eventually, I did go have have a blizzard. Chick-fil-A or Bake Sale Betty? Uh, Chick-fil-A. Have you been to Bake Sale Betty? Well, Bake Sale Betty, yeah. What? So you but mean- she makes this, like the her fried chicken sandwich. You mean chick, the, you mean the chain or yeah. Bake Sale Betty? Oh, yeah. Bake Sale Betty. Okay. I thought we should revisit that. Uh, butter or olive oil? Uh, honestly, olive oil. Stone fruit or berries? Uh go all together. That's true. And do you take it black or sweet and creamy? Depends on my mood. Oh, you can't have it both ways. Sweet and creamy. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. This was a really interesting conversation. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was yeah, a pleasure. Was a pleasure. Kramer, welcome back to the pod. It's been a while. Thanks for having me. When was the last time you were on? I don't know. What did I do? Something very wrong. I don't know. We still get emails about how everyone loves your voice. Oh, right? God. All right. So you did a piece uh, in our June grilling issue called Forest to Table because we couldn't not name the piece Forest to Table. It's about wood. You wrote an entire feature about wood. Yes. When I tried to describe it to people, they were like, wow, that sounds really boring. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, it's actually really cool. I swear. I spent like nine months working on it. Uh, so yeah. So what's the setup? The setup is um, part of my job, as you know, is traveling around the country, going to all the new restaurants that open. And as you have probably experienced as well, it started to dawn on me that more than half of the restaurants I was going to had these insane wood burning ovens. Grills. grills, yeah, yeah, that you can see when you often walk in the door. You see them, you smell them. They're the focal yeah. point of the restaurant. They're often, you know, open kitchens that are on display to the diners. So it just seemed crazy to me, especially in Manhattan. It's like <laughs> <laughs> this is nuts. You have no space. You have nowhere to store this wood. You're burning this kind of scary looking live fire in a building that's probably also a condo 
building. Well, that's one thing. Yeah, if you look at Manhattan, there is pretty much always something on top of the restaurant. The restaurant's the ground floor, and then there's 12 stories or 20 stories of an apartment building above it. Right, right. These weren't like little shacks yeah. in rural areas. Um, so I started to wonder, you know, what are the logistics of this like? Where are they even getting all this wood from? Like, what is it coming from some you know, forest in South America. Like, so I started calling up some of these restaurants that had these wood burning grills and just asking them, Hey, where do you get your wood? And it turns out that every restaurant sort of has a guy and it's just like they have their pea farmer or their like pork guy or their oyster person. Yeah. Yeah, I got a guy. Um, and typically all this guy does is, um, deliver firewood to restaurants and private residences and other stuff like that. Um, And I ended up driving upstate to Jeffersonville, New York, to meet with one of these firewood producers, a guy named Forbes March. All right. First of all, I I know we have um, professional, uh, we call them researchers, fact checkers here in the business. Um, I don't believe his name is Forbes March. That cannot be a real name. There's a lot about him that seems <laughs> like a, it might not be yeah, real. That's, that's the least of it. All right, get, explain, explain the rest of this Forbes March character. So, of Forbes March, he has a very unique background, which is why I chose to visit him as opposed to any of these other firewood producers in the area. Um, he grew up in Canada and then became uh got into television some sort of Canadian TV and then moved uh, to anyway, he described the show that he was on as as a youngster as the as a as the Canadian 90210 yes some show <laughs> called Northwood which yeah. I, I'd never heard of Northwood again with the pun oh, wow weird see doesn't it seem like it's not real <laughs> yeah. um and I, then he became a sort of minor soap opera star um, and Wait, this is this is the best part in your piece. Uh, he is, as far as my research shows, the only firewood guy on earth who is also a soap opera star. Parentheses. Some might remember him as winery owner Nash Brennan on One Life to Live in the mid aughts. Yeah, and then as if that weren't enough, he moved to Milan and he was a model uh, for Tommy Hilfiger. Tommy Hilfiger, yeah, and Armani. And uh, that's where he met his wife, who's Italian. And then they moved back to the States, and he was still doing some acting, but he also um, got into this hedge fund, and he was living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It's almost as if he's still in a soap opera. Right. <laughs> he's like, right. He is a character. He's like, I'm the model-turned-hedge fund guy. Yeah. And- but I sell some shares in the winery. <laughs> I'm just not managing it myself at the moment. Exactly. And then uh, that was around the time of the 2008 recession. And his he was supposed to get some money transferred for his hedge fund. And the Greek economy collapsed oh, or I saw, I saw that episode. <laughs> and he uh, decided that he was going to move his family upstate and live a quieter life. And he kind of dabbled in farming and he raised chickens and then he decided to go into the firewood business. Um, Did he know that that was an actual business? Like you could actually have a career doing firewood? What was his thoughts at that point? Um, He grew up, I think, in a 
household where maybe that was sort of on the radar. Mm -hmm. He told me this crazy story about this time when there was an energy crisis in Canada and his dad like threw their whatever heating element they had into the street (laughs) and they like only heated their house with firewood. So it seemed like he had this maybe connection to it that went way back. Um, But I think he also thought it'd be a good business. I think he's sort of an entrepreneur, a bit of a renaissance man. Um, (laughs) Well, well, his name is Forbes Marsh, yes. (laughs) So he so all right so so he says I'm going to start this this firewood business uh, and I guess at that point so this is 2011 ish yes yeah and and you know I think the, the 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 live fire thing was starting to starting to happen in restaurants yeah and he started out and he still does deliver primarily to pizza places mm-hmm. and pizza I mean everyone knows coal fired pizza I mean yeah. that's been around for a long time and that's probably like the most um the way that most people are familiar with you know a certain type of live fire cooking in restaurants well I, I mean well coal fired goes way back to like you know Frank Pepe's and stuff in New Haven and Lombardi's which I want to say is the oldest pizzeria in New York City at least that's a little say that but there's not a lot of coal fired places left right and I think and I, there are some regulations about like you can't build new coal fired ovens in certain I, cities I imagine and, yeah. yeah so I think a lot of the ones that sort of came into vogue in the 90s and 2000s were these wood fired ovens that, that people have in their backyards and stuff now if you have a really good backyard <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you're Mario Batali, yes. you have a grill works in your backyard. Um, so he kind of got into things at an interesting time when wood-fired grilling was no longer just about, you know, pizza places. It started to be uh, steakhouses and even little sort of indie restaurants like Achilles Heel in Greenpoint, um, which just does these specials on the weekends where they are burning live fire. Yeah. And what's interesting, well, so there's a lot to this, but uh, first of all, it's not just like he's chopping down wood and bringing it to the city. There's an entire process, both legally and then also artisanally, in terms of getting the exact type of wood that each of these chefs wants for his or her grills, correct? Right. So this is sort of how it works. First, Forbes has to get these felled trees. Mm. So he has to find loggers who will work with him, which apparently was some like six year long struggle to find loggers who would deliver him good trees. Because the loggers, they don't trust the soap opera star. They're (laughs) like, no, man, something's up with that guy. They were very dubious of him at the beginning. (laughs) Aren't we all? (laughs) Uh, So now he's got the good trees. When I went to visit him, there's this, you know, whole pile of trees on his lawn. That's how you know where to find him. (laughs) And then he, now that he's been working with them for long enough, he gets the exact size of Yeah. And you said in terms of them being split and whatnot, you don't want the curvy ones. You want them a certain dimension. Like you want really straight logs. Yes. Because the next step is that the logs go into a splitter where they're split to um, equal lengths. And this splitter is very loud, terrifying machine where like multiple people who work for him have like lost, you know, small body parts like in the splitter. And then once they go, th- the you, logs- meant, you mentioned a thumb injury of his. Yeah, he definitely, I don't know if it was one or both of his thumbs had oh, been Jesus. sewed back <laughs> oh, on. <laughs> I don't know if that was splitter related, but th- <laughs> it is very um, hard, uh, sort of semi gruesome work. 
splitting yeah. trees. Yeah. Um, so the logs go through the splitter, then they dry out, then they go into something called a kiln, which is essentially a shipping container with a furnace where all the split logs go into, and they're in there for two days drying out. At, I, I wrote this down at 260 degrees. Correct. Um, and that's really what makes Forbes Marches firewood different from if you were just to, um, you know, chop down a tree yourself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I was on. No, I can't even do that. But I, I thought, it's dried. I, well, I thought it was interesting. So, you know, the wood cooks at 260 degrees for two days. I'm, I'm reading you right now. Powered by a wood-burning furnace filled with scraps, quote-unquote, the short bits, the long bits, all the crumbs. That's our fuel, March says. Um, the, this is this is what I've found fascinating. The kiln removes about 400 pounds of water from each pallet. Quote in the winter again. This is I I I kind of I gotta call my research department. This is Forbes talking. Quote in the winter time, we all actually have our own weather patterns. <laughs> March said, "It'll snow here because we're producing so much steam." I mean, he couldn't have made that up. Well, I believe the steam, <laughs> and I believe I, I just. That's that's some poetic license there. I don't weather pattern. I believe that's a lot of water. It, I mean, it, yeah. this is why he was such a good story subject. It's yes. very poetic. <laughs> why he was such a good actor. So yeah, so so then uh, you know, and then you're, you're as he says, after two days, the split logs come out of the kiln, quote unquote, dry enough to just about light with a match. Which yeah, that's incredible because I, if you've, are you a fire maker? You got a fireplace anywhere? What do you think? I'm going to say no. no. <laughs> the nice Jewish girl from Chicago who lives on the Upper West Side. Um, so we have a little cabin out, out east, as they say. Um, first of all, it's not easy making a fire. Especially you get this random wood from who knows where, and you're trying to get it started. And sometimes it does start, then halfway through, it's like, yeah, no, don't want to burn anymore. And if you get the good wood, it's just like, woof, and it's like crackling, and it's intense. And you're like, oh, it's like cooking. Like, if the ingredients aren't good, the, the food isn't good. Yeah, and th that's one of the things that Forbes said is that when he first started doing this technique of kiln drying the firewood, you know, six years ago, everyone was so psyched about it. They're like, wow, this wood is so awesome. You know, it cooks, it uh, burns so evenly and lights so quickly. And now if he doesn't bring that really high quality wood to the restaurants, it's Totally unacceptable. Yeah, I he mean, set do you the like, bar. He, yeah, he really uh, kind of sort of set the bar for himself. Um, and so, all right, so let's talk about, so, so he's delivering this wood to restaurants like Achilles Heel in Greenpoint and Keste Pizza in the West Village, um, among many other places. And also he does residential people as well. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, and campgrounds. So there are regulations, though, in the city about how much wood you can have, et cetera, et cetera. Do you recall that? Yeah. So in New York City, you can store. Well, you can if you have a secured area, which I Not have a lot to of talk to the research department about yeah. exactly what that means. It's, it's hard enough for most restaurants in New York to have a coat check. Yeah. You if know? you have some sort of secured area, you can store as much as you want. If you don't have this quote secured area, you are only allowed to store what they deem one day's worth of firewood. So. Uh, restaurants have to get very creative about where and how they yeah. store there's their a, There's wood. a good however here. Because um, you said or you wrote um, that 
if they if the wood is part of the decor, then it's legal. So if they have it on display in the dining room and stuff, then they're allowed to keep it there? Yeah. So if you've walked into a restaurant anywhere in the country and seen that they have firewood on display, um, which has become sort of surprisingly common, this might be why. I did ask, so the next part of the story, yeah. I went to the Dabney in Washington, D.C., and they, I asked them, because they have a little bit of wood on display right when you enter, and they kind of laughed a little bit, like, there's no way we would be able to display even a small fraction of the wood that we need to use. Like, yeah. there's, I mean, it sort of depends on how, if, you, if your restaurant's like the Dabney and you're basically solely relying on wood to cook. So, let, yeah, let's talk about the Dabney, which is a restaurant I love, Jeremiah Langhorn, great chef. Uh, as you said, he's got a name out of Colonial Williamsburg. Um, super reliant on mid-Atlantic ingredients and old-timey cookbooks. Um, and that restaurant doesn't have gas lines, am I correct? That's right. They have some electric, mm -hmm. but no gas. Yeah, so like th that their fuel is wood. Like that's how they power the whole restaurant basically. Yeah. Um and you are in that kitchen, which is is it's 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 intense back there, I imagine. Yeah, well this is a classic move on my part. I'm like, "Oh, it'd be so fun to spend the day in the kitchen of the <laughs> Dabney. I'll get there like as soon as they light the fire and I'll stay there until 2 a.m. when they're done serving people." By about I don't know, eight o'clock. I had stripped off like multiple layers of clothing. I was like sweating. I was like maybe four months pregnant. <laughs> I was like, this is the worst story idea I've ever had. It was so hot. Now, and, now you know how your colleague Andrew Knowlton feels when he does his 24 hours videos. Oh my God. The best is <laughs> when he like stuck his head into the smoker at Franklin Barbecue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That hurt to look at. Um, so it's insanely hot, and I wasn't even as close to the fire as the line cooks who do that all night long. Um, so it's, it's it's not for the faint of heart or the— Yeah, Jeremiah in your piece was joking with one of the line cooks and asking, he says, Kai, I assume that's how she pronounces her name, C-A-I, um, how many water bottles do you go through in the night, 20? Um, yeah. yeah, that's like a key role of. I don't some know of why I assume that is Kai a woman. I don't know. Kai it was woman. a guy. It was a guy. Yeah, okay, yeah. sorry, Kai. Kai's a dude. But um, there was a, a woman line cook also working the fire. When yeah. I was there, yeah, there was a bunch of men and women back there, and it's in a busy place. And what's what's interesting about the Dabney? So it's this open kitchen again, where you can really see uh, the grill and and under and sort of how the chefs interact with the fire and loading it. Um, uh, couple things which is interesting with a lot, these sort of grills a lot of times they have different areas where there's more intense heat and flaming logs and, and then they kind of a lot of times will sort of like shovel the embers over to one end um, in terms of what they're cooking and how they're cooking it yeah so the setup at the Dabney is really awesome it's more most similar to like what Russell Moore has at Camino which is sort of this in old Oakland. In, yeah, in Oakland California which is sort of this old school hearth setup. It's, as Jeremiah said, it's the closest you can get to cooking via a pit in the ground. It's yeah. just like a slab of some sort of heat resistant concrete. You have this huge raging fire in the middle, and then you have these cooks who are dragging the coals to different corners of this sort of pit to create the amount of heat that they 
want. And then they have um, little rigs that they set up using bricks or grates or whatever, and they they can adjust how high they want those over the burning coals so that they can um, cook quail or steak or toast a piece of bread at the distance that they want it to be from the flame. Which is different than what I think so many of these places have now, these newer restaurants and ones, um, you know, if you look at like Jose Andres's Bizarre Meat in Vegas or Tom Colicchio's Beechcraft in Miami, they have the the really hot rod rigs, Grill Works, which is from Michigan. Um, and those are the ones you see around a lot with like the hand cranked sort of wheel on the right that can lower and raise the sort of the slanted grill and it catches the juices. And I mean, those things cost, yeah, tens of thousands of dollars and, and they can customize them to be 20 feet long or 10 feet long. Um, yeah. Uh, I thought what was cool about Dabney when I was there a few months ago, um, as you said, sort of different ingredients get different treatment on the heat. And when he was doing a vegetable dish, which I, oh my God, it was so good. It was, you know, he, this was early spring, I guess, or mid, yeah, probably the early spring. And um, uh, he'd had these little baskets of sort of prepped out vegetables. And this was like a lot of like carrots and turnips and parsnips and stuff and sort of chopped up. And then he would just take that basket and set it right on the embers and let those vegetables take on a smoky char, but still be pretty al dente, like not cook them all the way through, and then dress them and toss them and sort of salad them. And amazing. Yeah. the of uh, And the vegetables, the I think I had the same thing. There was like mm-hmm. the hearth roasted vegetable salad. Yeah, and I think depending like on what time of year you're there, it yeah. changes. Um, they're so incredibly delicious. It's like, what did you do? you have to wonder, like, what did you do to this? Did you, like, baste this in butter? Like, it doesn't make any sense that they're so good. And it's just the expert management of this hearth. Like, Well, but it's interesting. It's, it's, like, getting back to the original point, it's it's good wood plus good ingredients. I mean, those are great sort of local vegetables he's sourcing. And then he's got this fire with really nice fragrant but not too fragrant wood at the right temperature, um, which is, I think, so much of – Good cooking is not a bunch of wizardry. It's just sort of knowing what you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. And he's fanatical about ingredients. I mean, as obsessed as he is with fire, he's more obsessed with um, how he sources every single thing on that menu. It's funny you see Jeremiah there, and like, he, he he does have that old-timey feel. He has, like, these very red cheeks mm-hmm. from the heat, you know, and he's got the name, and then everything's so hand-done there. Uh, it's interesting, and you you – after your journey to a lot of these restaurants, and you mentioned a bunch of them in, in your lead paragraph about four places you went to in Chicago, including Elski and uh, Lena Brava and a bunch of places, Public, Publican Anchor, you talk about then going to, which you don't name, a particular sort of chef's counter restaurant in New York City. What was, and how would you contrast that meal to all these other places you went to? Yeah. In fact, it wasn't just that one meal in New York. It was something that I experienced a couple times as I was on the road this year researching the Hot 10. I'd be sitting at this chef's counter, which is supposed to be this really intimate experience where you feel so close to the food and to the people who are cooking it. And I felt that the experience was so sterile. Like, you didn't actually see anyone cooking because all this food was prepped out in advance and people are just like very carefully tweezering these like beautiful, you know, edible flowers on top of a 
steak tartare or whatever it is. And every dish that I ate felt, I mean, it's funny to say cold, but it, it just, it lacked exactly what we were talking about with the Dabney, this sort of just like intense deliciousness. Like you just crave this. Well, there's something, there's something primal about it. And it is like at its core, it's fire and it's ingredients. And like that's been going on for millennia. There, there should be literal or figurative warmth to a meal. Like you should feel welcomed and taken care of and interact with the creation of the food. Even if, even if you're eating like ceviche, there should be something, you know. Right. And I think about, you know, what were some of the best meals I had this year? And one of them was at this place, Public House in Nashville, which was essentially just two guys and a giant uh, wood-burning grill in a backyard. And they were just cooking the most simple food, you know, chicken and salt. But everything was delivered to me. F- I was sitting right in front of the grill. So it was like the minute it came off, it came onto my plate. And it was just had this like warmth and excitement. And it just felt like where you wanted to be at that moment. And um, I think that this is something that chefs feel too. I mean, when I brought this up with Jeremiah, he's like, yeah, this is why I wanted to do my restaurants this way. I want the cooks to feel like they're actually cooking. You end your piece with the with with the great quote from Forbes. <laughs> I'm going to read it. This is this, yeah, this is awesome. All right, and this is something I have observed myself, and it's so true, and it's so hard to figure out why it's true, but it just is. Uh, Forbes says, "Imagine you're at a party with a bunch of strangers, and there's a fire." Uh, he said, as we stood out on his front lawn between one of his kilns and a flock of mallard ducks, he's raised. Wow, he raises ducks too. Of course. Of course he does. Um, Quote, complete strangers will walk up to the fire, stand close enough to each other that it would be outlandishly uncomfortable in any other environment, and stay there in complete silence for a long time in total comfort with each other. And then, without any segue or transition, they'll just start talking to each other as if they've been friends since childhood. March leaned against the rusty kiln, gesturing with his arms, a consummate actor. There's just something about fire. There you go. Julia Kramer, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Emma Wurtzman and Carrie Polis and edited by Mitra Kaboli. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Grady's with additional music by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.